On occasion, uh, when I have to speak in other places, I fly, and usually when I fly, because I, because I part because I book late, and part because I'm Dutch, I buy the cheapest seats. And if I book really late, then I'm generally in the back of the cabin by the bathrooms. And it's a pretty uncomfortable ride. There's not room for your legs, and there's not really much to do back there. On one particular occasion, a couple years ago, I was flying, uh, can't remember where it was, but I, I knew when I landed I was going to be picked up and then I was going to go someplace and I was going to start speaking almost immediately. And so I wasn't prepared. I was so busy ramming back here. And then when I got on the plane, I thought this is going to be my prep time. So I'm sitting all the way back by the bathrooms and I've got like four or five things in front of me on this little tray. We're still sitting on the runway uh, in the Indianapolis airport and I've got all my notes in front of me and I'm trying to piece together some things that I'm going to say. And all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I look over and I could see a woman standing in the aisle. It was the stewardess. She said, sir, you look really uncomfortable right now. There happens to be one more seat open in first class. Would you like it? (laughs) Now, because I'm Dutch, I said, How much? (laughs) She said, (laughs) it's free. Man, she didn't have to ask twice. I got all my stuff together. I scrambled up. I wanted to turn around and say all those other poor folk sitting in the back. Well, I made my way to the first class. I sit down. Have you guys ever ridden first class? Man, these people got it made. You haven't even left, and they're serving you drinks. This is amazing. And without asking, they're bringing you food the entire trip, and it's free. It was amazing. I pay for a cheap seat. I got a first class. Why I say that is because a lot of the passage that you've just heard coming from Ephesians, even coming from the Old Testament, the prophecies of Joel, are prophecies and passages that speak about classes. There's language in there that implies there are certain people in this world who fly first class. They get special treatment. They have privileges. They have resources that the rest of us don't have. And then there is the rest of us. But what I heard Joel and Paul say is that in Christ, there is no curtain. Everybody flies first class. Now, I know that hasn't sunk in yet, but this morning on my way to church, I was already praying that you would hear that in the context in which you serve. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on all people, everybody flies first class. Every person, every space, any moment to the full extent Everybody flies first class with the Holy Spirit. Are you still there? And this spirit is not the one you grew up believing in. The one 
well, at least I, I think my history was kind of like yours. The spirit you grew up believing in is more of a friendly ghost. He's this kind of ethereal, motionless ambiance that comes over a person, and when he possesses a person, he makes them, wait for it, holy. And holy meant pious, reverent, kind, unflappable. Holy meant predictable. But then you start reading about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and it'll blow your mind. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon people who are not pure. Balaam, Jephthah, Samson, Saul, these are not evil characters, but they have divided hearts. And the Holy Spirit falls on these men unpredictably, and they do things that we can't explain. And when the Holy Spirit comes over some of these characters, they, he arouses in them dispositions that, well, holiness folk aren't always comfortable with. So, for instance, he comes on King Saul, and this is the words of 1 Samuel eleven six. The spirit fell upon Saul and roused him to anger. Now, <laughs> now, your mama told you to calm your anger, and here you have a person possessed by the spirit, roused to anger. He takes two oxen, cuts them in pieces, sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel and says, this is what will happen to anyone who does not follow the prophet. Have a good day. And you're thinking, wait, the Holy Spirit did this? The Holy Spirit comes upon Samson and he tears a lion apart limb from limb. And the verse ends by saying, and he never told his parents. <laughs> what? This Holy Spirit is powerful. And he is wild and untamed and unpredictable always holy, but not always tethered to our theological anchors. Can I get a witness? I think this is the kind of Holy Spirit we are hungry for this morning. I think the generation that is fast rising are more, they believe that the world is enchanted. Most of their parents didn't believe that, but they believe that the world is enchanted, but at the same time, they've never seen a miracle. And so they have this deep hunger for something that is spiritual, that is numinous and transcendent, and yet they can't find evidences of it. And so they are deeply spiritual beings, but not in traditional religious ways. They are hungry, I think, for the Holy Spirit. Good, 
but not always safe. So I want to tell you three stories this morning. I know it's, and I promise I'll tell them fast. But they, a couple of these are in the Old Testament. Only one is in the New. And you'll find in the same three stories, the same thing is happening. The Holy Spirit is coming over people and he is doing something extraordinary. And then I'll push the envelope by saying, I think what he's doing to these people, he intends to do to you whatever your occupation is is. Are you ready? ready. Uh, Thanks. Vicki, would you tell the others? (laughs) Numbers chapter 11 is the first one. It's a story you've hardly heard of. There's a time when Moses is leading the Israelites in the wilderness. They've been at it, oh, 20, 30 years, and there's 600,000 people, and they're all set up in their camps. And the people are tired of the heat and tired of the travel and tired of the same boring manna. And they're tired of each other and so they're tired of their leader. That never happens. And so a small rabble of them in Numbers 11 start to complain. And the complaints spread like a virus. People start piling on. And before you know it, the entire community is grumbling. And Moses hits the boiling point, And he's had enough. So he goes outside the, the encampment. And he has a conversation with Yahweh that goes pretty close to this. What did I ever do to you that you should heap onto me this kind of trouble? Did I give birth to these people? No, you did. Then why do you make me carry them? What have I done wrong to deserve this kind of abuse? Why did you make promises to these people and then ask me to keep them? If this is how you feel about me, if you really love me, Yahweh, kill me now. Do not let me face my ruin. Can we pause for a moment? And can I just speak to some of you who over the last few years have had to lead something. Mm. Are you there? Was there a moment any time in the last three years where you had Moses' conversation with Yahweh? What did I ever do to you that I should have to carry this kind of burden? I didn't give birth to these people. You didn't. Why are they grumbling at me? If you love me, then get me out of this job. Have you never had that conversation? Geez, I feel like I'm doing confession in front of about 700 priests. (laughs) Yahweh says to Moses, take 70 elders whom you identify as being a leader in the community And bring them outside the camp and stand in front of the tabernacle tomorrow morning. And what? 
there I will come down and I will take the spirit that is on you and I will put it on them and they will help you carry this burden. Mm. Now Moses is suddenly caught between two warring tensions every one of you that grumbled a moment ago feel. On the one hand, the weight is so heavy that you can't carry it, and that's why you're grumbling. But on the other hand, if Yahweh comes and does to 70 what he did to you, then you won't be the only leader. You won't be in control again. So now, all of a sudden, you're caught between wanting less of a job and still wanting to be in control. Can I get a witness? I want to run things. I just don't want to run things. So tomorrow morning, the elders all get up and they leave the city. Let me stop for a moment because the details are important. There's 600,000 people in this thing. This is twice the size of Fort Wayne. It's twice the size of St. Louis. It's about the size of Detroit. It's almost the size of Indianapolis. What I'm telling you is, it ain't the size of Fairmount. So we're not talking about a few tents with campfires and some people singing old crusty songs, shout to the Lord out of tune. We're talking about a large city with people encamped over several square miles. This is a huge, massive area. That's 600,000. If they only count the men, if it's their families on top of this, then it's the size of Chicago. Now, we know from Exodus that the tabernacle is put outside of the city limits. So you'd have to leave the city and go over to the tabernacle, which we'll say is the drum cage. It sort of looks like a tabernacle. You'd have to leave the city and come out to the tabernacle and there the Holy Spirit is going to fall. So the following morning, the elders all meet Moses out there and the Holy Spirit falls on the elders and they are filled with the Spirit and they begin to prophesy. This is a remarkable picture. We don't even know what prophets are are in the book of Numbers. They seem to come out of nowhere. They appear later, but did the job evolve? What really is a prophet? And the best I can figure, a prophet in any era was someone who got in between God and the people, and they were able to take the desires of God and put them into words and articulate those things in front of the people. A prophet was someone who used language to bring clarity and vision to the people that were following. It was someone who knew what was really happening when things happened. And they were able to put it together. So you went to a prophet when you needed wisdom and direction. You still there? So, so here's the twist in the story. The following morning, 
when all of the elders got over to the tabernacle and the spirit fell on them and they began to prophesy, there was only 68. There was two missing. Moses invited them. They were numbered among the leaders, but they never showed up. Oddly enough, these are the only two in the story whose names we know. We don't know the names of the 68, but the two were Eldad and Maydad. Some weird names. They never went over to the tabernacle. They were still in the middle of Fort Wayne. We don't know why. Did they have to work? They couldn't get off? Did the chariot break down? Did they test positive for COVID? We aren't told these things. We just know that when they had a meeting in front of the church, there were two of them who weren't there. And then the strangest thing happened. The two that never went to the meeting were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to prophesy. Only they were not prophesying in front of the tabernacle. No, no. They were prophesying in the middle of Fort Wayne, in the middle of their jobs. When they were at work, when they were quarantined, they were prophesying. And this is a radical vision of how the Holy Spirit works. He works clearly in structures that are religious and ecclesial in nature, but the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament moves when he wants, where he wants, on whomever he wants, and he does what he wants. And there's two people not following the protocol. God anointed. Joshua is upset. Joshua comes to Moses and says, Sir, is it loyalty? Tell these two guys to stop. And you can see why he's doing this. We know how this works. You gather in the church and the Spirit will fill you. If they don't have the decency to come to the gathering, you got to control this. These guys are in the middle of Fort Wayne saying anything they want. How do you even know that the Holy Spirit told them to say that? If you don't regulate this thing, it's going to jump the tracks. Moses' reply Would to God that all his people were prophets. Would to God he'd pour his spirit on every last one of them. Are you still there? Oh, my friend, this is a vision for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is bigger than the one that we've heard 
This is a vision where the Spirit jumps the rails and does what he wants, not only with people who are ordained, who are inside of the structure, who are following the system, but for people who are not ordained and they're not in the structure and they're not following the system, but they are in pivotal places. And this is the Holy Spirit's movement. This is not Moses' movement. So would to God everybody had the Holy Spirit and would to God they knew how to prophesy. It's a staggering vision. Are you there? Scene number two. I'm hurrying. Scene number two is in the book of Joel. Joel is written, well, we don't know when. I've seen dates that span four different centuries. The most likely, in my mind, occurs right after Israel returns from exile. They have just rebuilt the temple. Joel starts into a series of prophecies that are, well, to be frank, are not that great. All I mean is, he doesn't say anything in the entire book that has not already been said. And then there is a moment toward the end of his prophecy where Joel ascends to a new level. And he says something no previous prophet has said. Every previous prophet has identified the return from exile with a new Israel. It's a nationalistic agenda. When we come out of exile, we will run like deer to the heights. The fields will be flourishing, but only Israel. But here, two-thirds of the way through his prophecy, Joel starts talking about the Holy Spirit coming on all people. All is a big word. All means everybody, anybody, any place, any moment, to the full extent. All means there are no walls and no partitions. It means what one has, the other also has. So Joel starts describing what happens when the Holy Spirit falls upon people. And what I would like you to notice, church, is that the language that Joel uses is temple language. He remembers that the temple, the first one and the second, was divided into layers. And each layer was guarded by a wall. Can I come out again? I know there's COVID and you are nervous. and I ain't positive. I don't think. Relax. All the way out here was the core of the Gentiles where pretty much everybody could come so they could face heaven. But then there was a wall with a sign that said, if any Gentile passes this wall and goes into the next court, it'll cost him his life. So there was a court of the Gentiles, and then there was a court of the Jews. 
And that was the Jewish men and women. But then there was a place for the man. And then beyond that, there was another difference between the men and the priests. So in the temple, you start to get the idea that the closer you move to the center of the temple where the presence of God is dwelling, the closer you are to God. But what determines that are things that you can't control. It's your gender, your nationality, your ordination. You can't control these things, and yet you can't get close because of them. So what I hear Joel saying is that the Spirit would be poured out on people from both sides of the altar. He would come upon men and women to the same degree, fall upon priests and laity to the same degree. He would fall upon the young and the old, and he would fall upon the slave and the free to the same degree. And when the Spirit fell on these people, they would all of them, all of them prophesy. They would dream dreams and they would see visions that nobody who worked near them could see. They would put into words things that God was saying. They wouldn't just speak for God. God himself would be speaking when they opened their mouth. They would be able to live in any situation at any time in history. They would be able to tell you exactly what was happening because they had clarity and discernment. They had insight. Are you still with me? This might be a good time to say, church, that our world today is crying for prophets. At the same time, when so many people think they are prophets. But they're not. Do you know why? Because prophets don't just stand and remind us of justice. They remind us of God. They don't speak in tropes that get handed down from social media. They speak words that are genuine and freighted with meaning. Prophets have clarity. They see what everybody else sees, but they see something else. Prophets help their people lament in the presence of God. They don't make people angry. They make people repent. If we have so many prophets, why have we not seen the result of it? The truth of the matter is, despite the number of people insisting that they're speaking prophetically, they are not yet familiar with the Word of God. 
Give me five seconds. If you think you have the gift of prophecy, you might, but you better harness that thing, man. And it starts by reading the prophets. If you want to be a prophet, read them. Full stop. Are you, are you okay? You don't speak on your own. You are more constrained than anybody in the room. You're free, wonderfully free, within the disciplines. So Joel says there's coming a day when God is going to unleash his Holy Spirit on everybody, both sides of the temple. Every denomination, every ideology, every political party. Oh, I can't wait. Are you there? Last story. Last story is in Acts chapter 19. Paul. Paul is on his third, or was it his second? I think the third missionary journey. And he swings by Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, he runs into some of the elders. Ephesus is about 600 miles as a crow flies from Jerusalem. If you're walking, and most of them did, it's 850 miles. It's a long way. And not long ago, in Jerusalem, there was this little moment known as Pentecost. Have you heard of this? This is quite a day. There was 120, mostly if not all Jews, crammed into a small room, and all of a sudden the wind came through, and little pillars of fire lighted over the top of everybody's head, and they went out and they started to speak in different languages. They began to prophesy in the city of Jerusalem. There's more than a half a million people crammed into a tiny city for the Feast of Weeks from every nation in the region, and all of a sudden, 120 people cut loose out of that room, and they go onto the streets, and they begin to preach, and these people on the streets said in the Greek, holy cow, this is awesome. We've never heard anything like this before. These guys are speaking in our own language, not the 12. The 120. The problem with Pentecost is that it happened in a city purely Jewish. And it happened to mostly Jews. Now, Paul is 850 miles away in a city known as Ephesus. He comes upon 12 elders. And he says to them, Did you... Received the Holy Spirit on the day you believed. Their answer is going to shock you. They said to Paul, We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> what? Well, come to my class. No, what Paul does. Paul goes over 
and he lays his hands on them, and he starts to pray. And these 12 guys, full-blooded Gentiles, who flew coach their entire lives, are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues. And they begin to prophesy. Yeah, I know when this happens, I talk about this in Wesleyan circles. You're all worried about tongues. I'm about tongues. I grew up afraid of it too. So I decided for a long time, rather than have wildfire, I'd have no fire at all. And I didn't like that either. The real marvel to me is not just that they spoke in other languages. The marvel is that ordinary people who flew coach their entire life were suddenly gifted with the power to prophesy. They started talking like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Haggai, Zechariah, Habakkuk, a bunch of other names you can't pronounce. That spirit came over them and there was weight and gravitas to their words. They saw clearly what was happening and they were able to articulate it in language. Here's where I'm going with this church. I believe we live in a day when the Holy Spirit has already fallen on people both sides of the altar. He has fallen on the clergy, I hope, or we're in trouble. But he has fallen to the same degree on people that are not ordained, who've jumped the rails, didn't follow the process, but they're embedded into systems all over this city. And if the Holy Spirit could get hold of those people, mm, the damage he could do in a good sense. Are you still there? The Holy Spirit wants to possess public schools and emergency rooms and civil courts and counseling clinics, and factory floors, and gymnasiums or locker rooms. The Holy Spirit wants to possess the market. He wants to possess the mechanic's garage because all means all. Every person, every space, any moment to the full extent. I am convicted that the next movement in our church will be when the Holy Spirit gets hold of shepherds already embedded in the very places we want to see redeemed. And he will raise your capacity to another level. He will find in you resources you didn't know you had and he will call them to life and he will set you free you will perform at a much higher level than ever before. Oh, not all of you see it. Do 70 of you? We'll start there. 
And I believe that when the Holy Spirit comes on these people, they will prophesy. Most of you right now are thinking, man, dude, you, you told me I was a priest. I'm still getting off the floor. Now you tell me I'm a prophet. Listen, prophet is not a position. It's a function. You're darn right you can profit. In any position, you can perform the function of a prophet by hearing what's happening in front of you and putting it together what's happening inside of you. And you can learn to find words for these. Some of you are like, oh, I'm not very good with words yet. And a lot of people who say that are actually quite articulate if you get them going. So, so the capacity is there. Could you leave open the possibility that the Holy Spirit would call it to life and set it free for something that is redemptive? And last, I believe the way into this is not a moment in time. The Wesleyans, this is my personal conviction, edit this, whatever you got to do to save my ordination. I think the Wesleyans got it wrong exactly where we had it right. We were right about the Holy Spirit. There is something the Holy Spirit can do to raise everybody's game. And most denominations haven't touched it Yet, Luther died saying he wished he would have given more attention to the Holy Spirit. We're on to something when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. But this is not always a moment. It is for some. But this does not mean we walk around craving a baptism, a filling, in immersion, in anointing, I believe this rises in people who practice certain disciplines. So it's never either filled with the Spirit or not so much. It's to what degree. And that depends on how rigorous and devoted is your life. So if we're going to talk about how we might channel the Spirit as prophets in our workplace, we will have to learn how to walk with the Spirit. It ain't how high you jump, it's how you walk when you come down. And we will have to learn how to listen to the Spirit how to discern that it's really the Spirit who is talking and not just us. We'll have to learn how to speak as though God was speaking through us. This, this isn't just magic. The people who do this do the same kinds of things. So I want to spend the next few weeks talking about that. I hope it's okay. Okay.